Uh, well, good morning. Um, may I add my welcome uh, to James's. Welcome to you, uh, those who come here often, those who are visiting, um, to new and old friends. Um, I realised this morning that I've been here for 20 years. So um, I'm keeping the average up, um, if nothing else, uh, today. This, as James said, uh, is part of our series. It's the third week of our series on sharing life. And we're, it's really about our own discipleship, our discipleship together, but also our mission, our own mission, and our mission together. At St Barnabas, we like to talk about being followers of Jesus, sharing the goodness of God with everyone. And today, in some ways, we're looking at what is, what could be, what should be the impact of God's goodness on our life and the life of all those we encounter. And we're working our way through 1 Corinthians, allowing it to say whatever it says to us as we go. Before we read today's passage, I think it's interesting uh, to note a little bit about the tone in which Paul writes to these people. So the Corinthian church were people who readily accepted the gospel, they readily accepted the grace from God, justification by faith alone. But the impact of that on their lives was probably minimal. Their conduct, their behavior was really all over the place. And yet Paul is so gentle with them. He challenges them, yes, but in a way that says, Come, let us work on this together. It's in real contrast to how he writes to the Galatians. Galatians, in many ways, uh, is the troubleshooting book on grace. Romans, which I'll quote a little bit later, is Paul's kind of treatise on grace. Galatians is his troubleshooting book. The Galatians were people who readily accepted the gospel of grace too, justification by faith alone. But then they wanted to add to the foundation they said, maybe you need something more. And started to believe in something that could be described as grace plus or Jesus plus. And Paul was furious with them. In fact, I imagine the first thing they had to do when they got the letter was wipe the spittle from it. He was furious. I wonder how often we if not in how we act, but in our mind, operate the other way round. If we'd walked into the Corinthian church, we would have seen some really crazy stuff. They were getting drunk at the communion table. There'll be no opportunity to do that later. They were in some very interesting relationships going on. Prophets and preachers were talking at once. No one was listening to each other. We would have walked in and thought, oh my word, what on earth is happening here? There was some more subtle stuff too. Jealousies, competitiveness, arrogance, cliques. Things that maybe we are secretly guilty of. There was little love there. I wonder how we would tackle this. I wonder how we do tackle things, behavior, when it's not right. 
Paul's approach is to talk to brethren. That's the word he uses. Those who with him are in Christ. In the first verse that we're about to read and says, come on, let's talk about some things. From a foundation of grace, he brings serious challenge, a call to build a life that truly lasts. And so we're going to read this morning 1 Corinthians 3, the whole chapter. Uh, and if you want to join me in uh, following that, either on the screen or, or just listen, that's absolutely fine. This is what it says. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still world, worldly, mere influence in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. Since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul. And the other says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are God's fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder receives a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss and yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. <clears throat> Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, so you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all of your yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This is the word of the Lord. And Lord, we ask today that you would help us to be open to your gentle, serious challenge. 
Now, Paul challenges a number of behaviors in this passage, and uh, with all of them, there's kind of two angles. One is looking at leadership and, and leaders and how they are, but there's very much a sense of talking to everyone too. And we're going to kind of uh, explore both of those a little bit through everything. I want to highlight three particular challenges that are here that are kind of weaving their way through the passage, um, but you may spot others too. Three areas where Paul calls the Corinthians out and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is ridiculous. There's a better way. And I will tell some of my own stories in that, uh, where I was completely ridiculous in what I did. Um, Self-humiliation is an interesting hobby, um, but each to their own. And through this, um, I'm not going to ask you to say anything, but maybe there's a space for some quiet, honest reflection Is this or something similar me, you can ask yourselves? Am I being ridiculous in this particular way? Surely not. Probably all of us are in some way. So the first challenge uh, that seems to come through this passage, I think, is that Paul wants to say, what are you doing? You've splintered off into groups around people and their teaching. There's one-upmanship going on, judgmentalism. This isn't a way to live. So in verse 4, you've got people saying, I follow Paul. The first, the founder, the one who brought the message to them. But then others saying, well, I follow Apollos. Um, Everyone in Corinth, by the way, was posh. Um, Just for the... (laughs) I follow Apollos. Um, uh, because he's more advanced, his teaching was further on, perhaps more eloquent, eloquent in his speaking or sophisticated. But Paul says they're all servants of God. Verse 5, the Lord assigned to each his task. Servants of God for you, through whom you came to believe. Verse 21 and 22, all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, whoever. Servants of God for you. Jesus himself noted, you know, who is greater, the master or the servant? The master, of course, is an easy question, an easy answer. These guys were servants. If we flick the analogy a little bit and and talk about waiting staff. Now, some in the room, I'm sure, have been to Midsummer House and had a lovely meal. I haven't. Um, I'm thinking about taking a second mortgage and going. (laughs) I'd love to taste the food just to see what it's like uh, once at least. Now, whether you've been or not, you might be able to name the chef, Daniel Clifford. He won Great British Menu main course a while ago and is a two Michelin star chef. It's the kind of thing you might know. Can anyone name any of the waiting staff? Anyone? Paul and Apollos were waiters. God was the chef, bringing an incredible, glorious banquet to us. We could add a few names to Paul and Apollos in our time. You know, Keller, or Breen, or McLaren, or Neil. 
They're waiters. God is the chef. In terms of the passage, the passage speaks of it in terms of planting. You know, one plants and one waters. But it's God who makes it grow. Verse 7. This faith, this glorious faith, has only one pedestal. And it's shaped like that. This is the only pedestal of Christianity. And only one man could ever hang there. We can get so subtly image conscious, can't we? Associating associating ourselves with this preacher or that church or their teaching and miss the richness of all that is being served to us or could be served to us. Sometimes we're proud with who we associated with. Sometimes we can do the opposite and be embarrassed. I know for me, one of the great influences on my life is a book by a guy called Frank Foglio. Uh, You've probably never heard of him, but it's a cool name, isn't it? Um, And uh, I'm always nervous about mentioning it because it's a a weird book and there's some bits of it you think, what is he saying? It seems it's very much of an age and, and, and there's certain maybe prejudices in there that we would find uncomfortable. And yet it changed my life. But I was a little bit embarrassed, you know, because we want to be seen to be this person or that person or the other person. You know, I read Gordon Fee or F.F. Bruce or what? you know, there's this kind of meritous thing. It's a bit like it with um, reading, you know, books from Waterstones, isn't it? You know, you can't really confess to liking Geoffrey Archer. It's not considered highbrow enough. And yet he's written some good books. You probably think less of me now, I've said that. (laughs) We're concerned about being right. And of course, everyone thinks they're right. That's the nature of belief. Isn't it? You, don't, you don't think something and think, well, I believe this, but I know it's wrong. I mean, it, no, we, 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 that's the nature of things. We think we're right in what we believe. But the question is, what then happens? Do we become judgmental with that? Do we seek to create an image around ourselves, who we're with, what we read? I've said this before here, but I'll confess it again. Sometimes I catch myself basically forming a kind of hierarchy in my mind of the way things are. And to my great shame, I say this, for the record. To my great shame, I say this. Is you know, at the top you have God, and then obviously, because I've got good theology, I'm like, well, those of us uh, who, you know, the redeemed, we're just one below that. And then there's, you know, angels and, uh, you know, and other heavenly beings covered in eyes and with wings and that kind of stuff. Further down the list, you've got demons, Satan, and then right at the bottom, people from other churches. <laughs> I mean, I really don't think that, but sometimes this is how I find myself acting and dare I say occasionally speaking and how horrible how ridiculous I find myself in those times echoing Paul's words in Romans 7 where he says what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death you ever like this the 
The second challenge, I think, weaving through this passage is to appraise in particular roles. Part of the personality cults that were going on focused on the belief that certain jobs in the kingdom were better. A bit of the sort of I follow Apollos thing was about the sophistication of the teaching as opposed to the simplicity of Paul. But reading the whole of Corinthians, both, the, you know, both first and second, you see actually this pervaded the way they operated in general with themselves, with all the roles in the church. There were huge issues of status. And yet Paul in our passage, verse five, talks about assigned tasks from the Lord. Talks about each having their own purpose, their own labor in verse eight. And later on in 1 Corinthians, without wishing to steal someone's sermon down the line, in chapter 12, you, you get that very much explored in terms of one body, many parts. And Paul uses a, a, an interesting analogy. He talks about the foot getting despondent because it's not a hand. And the ear being despondent because it's not an eye. And then he has a ridiculous analogy where he says, what if the whole body was an eye? I mean, you have to be pretty bad sighted in terms of long sight for your eye to look that big through your glasses, don't you? Your whole body is an eye. No offense to anyone who's long sighted, of course. What Paul says here in verse 9, he says, we are God's fellow workers. He's talking about him and Apollos, but it is true of all of us. We are God's fellow workers. I wonder if I did a little quiz this morning with you. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be honest about the very first answer that pops into your head. What you're thinking half a second later is your reasoning kicking in. But be honest with yourself. What's your first answer to this question? Who's the most important person serving here this morning? Now you're thinking, of course. So you're starting to say, we're all equal. We all have a part to play. You know, you've found your way to the right answer. But I would bet that quite a lot of people said James. A few people probably said me, God help you. We see some things as better than others. We see status in things. I remember the first time uh, I spoke at St. Barnabas and honestly, I thought I'd made it. I was like, yes, you know, there was something about it that says, I've been invited to speak. You know, I was really pleased um, with myself and, and then got up there and I, 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 it went okay. I got a little bit lost. Um, I think I just spoke in one monotone for the whole thing. I was, you know, I was so nervous, but it was all right. I got down and the, uh, the, the service leader had a chat with me afterwards and said, uh, he was very complimentary about some things and said, you should continue to speak. However, can we just talk about the Trinity heresy that you said about 10 minutes in? <laughs> and I just, oh, you know, all that pride. What a wretched man I am <laughs> comes to mind again. Do you know that service leader was so gracious though and the church was so gracious with me. I said, okay, we fixed that. Come speak again. 
It's a classic Jesus move. Forever challenging people about the conduct and then saying, right, let's go. Let's get on with it. Peter, you utterly failed me. Could you lead the church? Classic Jesus move. The call in this passage is to humility and confidence. We operate as fools, it says in verse 18. Fellow workers, verse 9. But God's fellow workers. We are, verse 23 says, of Christ. So for those of you who were complimentary enough to think I was important, I am not the most important person here. But I probably need to hear, nor am I the least. We are God's fellow workers. So a challenge to splintering off into groups around people, a challenge to seeing things in a hierarchy. And there's a challenge too about what we're building. And the challenge really is, are we building for ourselves? Are we building for me? Corinthians, are you building for yourself? Or are you working for God's building, us together? The Corinthian church in many ways was, uh, it was kind of famous for its pursuit of wisdom and glory. Not fortune and glory, that's Indiana Jones. Um, wisdom and glory. They were interested in being smart. Wise by the standards of the age, the passage says. Associated with the most sophisticated thinking. And they were too obsessed with gifts. You know, who could do what? Who had what gift? This one was more important. And it was about their own glory. That's massively taken down by Paul later on in the letter. And Paul challenges them here. This is the start of a challenge that runs through Corinthians. Challenges them to build only on Jesus. Verse 11. There's echoes there of the wise and foolish builder that Jesus describes in Matthew 7 and Luke 6. Where are we building? On what are we building? And the challenge is that it shouldn't be us or our own philosophies. He challenges them to think carefully about what they use too and how they build. Some things the passage tells us will not survive. In a sense, Paul's challenge to the Corinthians was, do you want to be God smart or God connected? Do you want personal glory or do you want to see transformation in the people around you? Now, it should surprise you, um, not surprise you rather at this point to learn I have been an idiot in both of these ways as well. One of my idiocies, maybe you share this, is uh, uh, about how you read the Bible. Uh, the Bible is wonderful. 
And there's great discipline to be had in reading it. You know, and a good rule of thumb is read a bit every day. That's great. But it is a relational book. It's about us hearing from God and relating to God. That's what those times are supposed to be about. But how easy we slip into, well, I'll have a good day today because I've ticked the box on my plan. Or I'm going to have a bad day today because I didn't manage to read the passage. It slips from being about connecting with God to somehow achieving something. I've done my God smart thing. I've done the religious thing I need to do. One particular year, I tried to read the Bible in a year, which is a reasonable and, you know, that's a decent recommendation to anyone. Read it all one year. But it slipped from being relational to religious for me. And I found myself uh, partway through the year, I was 75 days behind. (laughs) But then I had a great thought. It was genius, I thought at the time. I said, you know what I'll do now? I'll read two every day, and then in 75 days, I'll be back up to speed. And then all will be good in the world. I mean, what on earth was I thinking at this point? I hadn't managed to read one a day, and my new plan was read two a day. That's definitely going to work. But you see where I'd slipped? In that somehow, what this was about was me achieving the plan. Instead of about the relationship with God. I'm also an idiot when it comes to kind of gifts and things. So I remember starting out many years ago now praying for... uh, someone for their healing and uh, we were praying well into the early hours of the morning um, because more prayer equals more healing just for the tape that's rubbish Um, (laughs) but the uh, you know so we were praying into the early hours of the morning and then I was like oh you know I should I think I've received this prophetic word I should call my friend so I went out to a telephone box and phoned it tells you how long ago it was. Went out to a telephone box and phoned my friend at two o'clock in the morning. He happened to be staying uh, with his parents at that time. His mother answered the phone from her sleep and said, you're kidding me, you want to talk to him? It's 2 a.m. Anyway, bless her, she handed the phone over to him and we had a bit of a chat. And it was just, where did it got to? It had been all for me then about being, oh my goodness, I had this great prophetic word and then this guy was healed. You know, I can imagine breakfast in my friend's house the next day They would have laughed and laughed, I'm sure, at my idiocy. Bless them, they're very gracious. They've never spoken about it to me. (laughs) Um, And never will, I'm sure. Still a wretched man, I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. There are three and maybe more potential challenges for any one of us here. Pause for thought. But I don't know that pause for thought and self-reflection is enough to change us, enough to change me. Really, how do we build a life that truly lasts? Who will rescue us? from these bodies. One of the things we do, I'm as guilty of it as anyone, 
I say as much as a confession as anything else, when we read the Bible is we read half the verse or half the thought. John 10.10 is a classic. Either we read the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy and feel fearful or we read I have come you may have life and have it to the full. But the verse says both of those things to be read together. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And boy, do we know it. What does verse 24 say? Starts with the word and, and not even a capital A. It's a continuation of the same sentence. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And Romans 7.24 says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And verse 25 says, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The astonishing truth of these verses, and many more besides, is exactly what Paul outlines here. In verse 11, the place we start, the foundation, the only foundation, is Jesus Christ. The grace that is freely given through the pedestal of the cross. And by the grace God has given us, like Paul in verse 10, by the grace God has given us, we set out to build a life that truly lasts. And whether we what we build survives or gets burnt up. Verse 15 is clear. We will be saved by that same grace. One of the most profound parts of the Christian faith is plumbing the depths of what the cross has done. Jesus achieved everything there for us and for all creation. Everything will be redeemed because of what was achieved there. And sometimes it's easy for us to, to slip into that sense of, well, you know, the cross means my sins are forgiven. It does. But on the cross, Jesus also dealt with sin. He dealt with this thing that causes that. He dealt with the thing that leads to those acts. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, he has removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. The cold stone that was the defining, influencing thing on our lives has been removed, Ezekiel 36 says. And the beating heart of grace is now there. This is the argument that Paul concludes in Romans 5, right at the end, where he says, sin, sin leads to death. But grace leads to righteousness and life.
It's why when in the very next verse in 6 1, Paul says, shall we go on sinning? He says, no, because it makes no sense for that to be the next thing. If we understand that grace inspires and enlivens, it has the power to transform. It has the power to change how we then live. Then this is where we start. Grace more than covers our sins. It has a stronger and deeper and more profound power than I think sometimes we've ever acknowledged. Or maybe ever can. It is the way we're supposed to live. Here's the truth today, folks. We've said yes to the cross. Then you stand right now. Right now we stand. Spotless before the throne. Dressed in pure white. How's that going to change your day? How's that going to change what you then done? If that truth, the profundity of that truth were to hit us, we would know that nothing we do today and nothing anyone else could possibly do to us will change that. We will stand at the end of the day before the throne spotless. Dressed in pure white. This is the inspiring, enlivening power of grace. How do we live? How do we build a life that lasts? How do we live in this way? We start and end with grace. For many years, for me, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, was a tough one. It haunted me. I feared I was the guy. You perhaps remember the story. I was the guy who was given the one and in fear buried it. You ever feel like that? Very recently, someone blew that away for me. Blew it out of the water. The guy with one operates from a place of fear. And does nothing. The other two don't. The other two operate from a place where they know this is a gracious God. They know he has high expectations. But they are so secure that they just walk out and do something. And they get a massive well done from the Lord. From a foundation of grace they then built. They went and did. And from a foundation of grace, we build. The quality will be tested, our passage says in verse 13. But who of us would hear would say, everything that we've done was with gold and precious stones and silver. No, some of it was with wood, hay and straw. There will be mixed quality. And that final purifying fire will take away the stuff that wasn't worth taking with us anyway. And we'll be left with just the things that were eternal. But nothing in the eternal justice of that fire will tear us away 
from the love of God or his salvation. Chapter 121, we must hear again and again, God was pleased to save us and always will be. By his powerful grace, we will stand on that final day spotless before him, dressed in pure white. I remember a distinct, a season in my life where this absolutely hit me. And I got up every morning and I knew, I knew that nothing could be done to me today. Nothing I did would change the fact that I stood before God dressed in perfect white. This was his grace to me. And I went to live the day. And do you know what? My conversation was better. My humor was better. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and I made mistakes too. But I also knew that at the end of the day, I stood before God perfect, dressed in white. This is the way we're supposed to live. How do we rise to Paul's three challenges? How do we build a life that truly lasts? And the answer is we start, we live, and we will end under the grace of Jesus Christ. It is the only way. As the old hymn says, grace has led me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home.